Okay, now if this starts to fall, it's your job to catch it, okay? All right, Ezekiel 18. I want to talk to you on a topic that's going to help you with discipleship. I knew I was talking to discipleship nights, and so I organized two talks around that because I want to really help you take the next step, okay? So Ezekiel 18, I'm going to get there in a second. As always, on your way out, if you avail yourself to our table, um, the profit from that goes to our main mission in the world, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted, okay? So I want, but I want to talk to you about something tonight that is very, very vital to your development as a person, all right? Now, it's Tuesday night, and you're in church, okay? That tells me you're saved, all right? And if you're not, you just missed a great opportunity. What, I mean, look, if you're spending Tuesday night seeking the things of God, my question isn't, is Jesus your Lord? And sometimes that's not the right question, because Jesus being your Lord is not the answer to everything. So, so, sometimes, sometimes we need Jesus as our Savior. Sometimes we need Jesus as our rabbi, our, our, our director of our way of living. So here, here's my question as we're going to get started, okay? Do you reckon you're going to enjoy heaven? All right? Do you reckon you're going to enjoy heaven? Now be careful how fast, because when the first time someone asked me that, um, my first answer was immediately a loud, resounding, yes, of course. Like, you can't, that's heaven. You know, of course I'm going to enjoy heaven. And then he challenged me to do something I'm going to challenge you to do. He said, I want you to go back and I want you to read everything Jesus ever said about heaven and ask yourself if you would like it. All right? So I did. I went back and I read everything Jesus ever said about heaven, and I asked myself, would I like it? Let me give you an example. Jesus said that in heaven, all the secret conversations in your heart will be revealed for all to see. You want to go there? So, so, so if you're sitting across in a restaurant and someone's telling you a story and you're thinking, this person's so boring, just shut up. In heaven, it's just going to be over your head in a billboard. You want to go there? What, what, if, what if you're a racist? Or what if you what if you know a racist? Because there's no racism in Oakland, right? That that doesn't exist out here. This is like land of multi, right? So so let's say let's say you know a racist, and let's say this racist I'm talking he's not like sort of working through it. He's like white sheep wearing racist, right? And let's say that he's in the hospital and he's got two minutes to live, and so. We send we send you to go talk to him, but you're the wrong. You got too much color in your skin, and you got. We'll send you because you're the epitome of everything white. Okay, so so you go you go to the hospital and you say, "Look, man, I, I, I'm just got to level with you. I urge you. You're gonna die in two minutes. I ur you desperately need to sort things out with Jesus right now." And the guy goes, "You know what? I think you're right. Please help me." And so you lead him to the Lord. And he prays some form of some prayer that asks Jesus in his heart. And he means it. He's like, Jesus, be the Lord of my life for the rest of my life. All 30 seconds of it, right? And so this guy's got 15 seconds to live. And he asks you and he says, hey, I've never been to church. I've never opened a Bible. I don't know about anything about anything. I just know I'm dying in 15 seconds. Why did I even bother doing this? What difference does this make for me now? And you've got one sentence because he's dying. You can't open a Bible. You've got one sentence. What would you say? You would say, well, because you did this, when you wake up, you're going to wake up in heaven instead of 
hell. And that's a good thing, right? So the guy goes, well, thank God I'm going to end up in heaven instead of hell. That's awesome. And so this guy dies. Eight seconds later, this man dies. This racist man dies. Where does he go? He goes to heaven, right? He's accepted Jesus. He goes to heaven, right? So this racist guy wakes up at a table with every tribe, tongue, and race. Is he in heaven or hell? To the racist, heaven is hell. The, the issue isn't whether he'll go to heaven. The issue is when he walked into heaven, he thought it was hell. Is there, is, so, so the question isn't whether you'll go to heaven when you die. I went back and, and I looked at everything Jesus said about heaven. And what I found was, was that he never once invited people to go to heaven. Not one time did he ever invite someone to go to heaven. What he did do was he said, here's what heaven looks like. I'm asking you to be honest enough to ask yourself, if you walked into heaven tomorrow, what parts of you would survive and what parts of you would be burned up? If, if, so the question isn't so much, will you go to heaven when you die? The question is, if heaven invaded your life tomorrow, what parts of you would survive and what parts of you wouldn't last? What parts of you need to be burned off? Like, like Jesus' invitation was, I urge you, whatever parts of your life could not exist in heaven, go ahead and burn it off now. Don't wait to go to heaven one day. Go ahead and let heaven be established in yourself right now. That was the invitation of Jesus. Because the issue wasn't going somewhere else. Jesus never invited people to go to heaven, not once. And his followers never took him that way. Jesus never shows up and says, hey, and they go, oh great, you're here. We get to go to heaven now. They never do that. They never do that. Jesus dies and rises from the dead. That's pretty impressive. He comes back from the dead, and how much did he talk about heaven? None. How much did he talk about hell? None. I find that amazing. What I find more amazing is no one asked him. Like, he comes back from the dead. If I died tonight, and you came to my funeral on Thursday, and then I showed up here on Sunday and ruined your service... Pastor Stephen says, oh my God, Shane Willard's here. I just came from his funeral and he's here. Get him up here. Get him a mic. We need to have a question and answer session. How many questions would we get through before someone asked me, hey, what actually happens when you die? We wouldn't get through very many. But Jesus comes back from the dead and not one person asked him what happens when you die. Not one. Not one. Not one person. Not one person said, what's heaven like? What's hell like? I heard you preach there. How'd your altar call go? Did you clean out hell, you rascal, you? But no one even asked him. Look, if you do a preaching crusade in hell and then come back, somebody at least ought to ask you how it went, right? No one, no one asked. No one asked, what's heaven like? What's hell like? What actually happens after you die? Are you going to write a best-selling book where you can use fear to manipulate people into buying your product? You're not gonna, are you going to do that? Are you going to do that? Are you, are you going to write a book about your 23 minutes there? And, and, and are you going to do that? But nobody. Nobody asked him. Nobody asked him. What did they do? Jesus comes back from the dead, and they go, hey, great, you're back. Are we going to take over Rome? Is it now that heaven's going to come to the earth? Because we don't want to go to heaven. We want heaven to come here. That's what we want to have happen. See, see if you want to get the full story of any book, you have to read the beginning and the end, right? Like, if you're going to do a book report and you don't want to read the whole book, let me give you a clue on how to cheat, Okay. You read the beginning and you read the end. You make up what's in the middle. It doesn't matter, okay? But you, you at least have to read the beginning and the end, right? In the beginning of the Bible, what is God doing? 
He's making a new creation where? On the earth. At the end of the Bible, what is God doing? He's making a new creation where? On the earth. So the beginning of the Bible, God's making a new creation on the earth. The end of the Bible is God making a new creation on the earth. And everything in the middle of the Bible is about God making a bunch of new creations on the earth to prepare the earth for the new creation coming to the earth. So the beginning of the Bible is about what God's doing on earth. The end of the Bible is about what God's doing on earth. Everything in the middle of the Bible is about what God's doing on earth. How in the world did our message ever become how to go somewhere else? The issue isn't where you go when you die. The issue is, are you partnering with God to bring heaven to every place you see hell now? The, the, the church is doing its job when the church is looking around and they're finding hell and they're invading it with heaven. The church is doing, here's, 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 here is when the church is doing its job. If heaven came to earth tomorrow, would the earth be ready to just live how God wants us to live? Because the church is doing its job. Essentially, Jesus' invitation is, whatever heaven looks like, go ahead and establish that in your heart today. So that if heaven came into the earth tomorrow, you don't get whiplash. You've been living like that for a very, very, very long time. The people around you have been living like that. Oh, dinner with every tribe, tongue, and race? Sounds great. Oh, we have to live with authenticity and honesty and no dodginess and manipulation? Oh, I've been living like that for a while. Oh, in heaven, no matter if you started working at 6 a.m. or 5 p.m., you get the same wage. Oh, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with people who did less than me getting the same reward from God. I'm, I'm okay with that. Really? I'm not. I'm still working on that. If that part of heaven came to my life tomorrow, there'd be part of me that needed to be burned up because I can't stand the thought that I've done more than someone else and they're going to get the same reward from God as me. So, but I need to work on that because Jesus said that's what heaven's going to be like. And heaven's not going to change. I need to change. So part of discipleship is aligning yourself with heaven right now. You do A destroyed life is one waiting to go to heaven one day. A fulfilled life is a life in the continual pursuit to allow heaven to be established in you right now. You do not have to wait to go to heaven to be in heaven. Heaven is available to you right now. And God has called you to bring that heaven to every person you touch. In Revelation 21, it says this. And I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea no longer was. And there was a new city. Heaven coming down. At the end of the Bible, no one's staying in heaven. Everything that's in heaven is coming back here to this earth to live in a way that God originally intended for it to be. And the challenge of you and me individually and collectively is are we partnering with God to establish heaven on the earth to prepare the earth for the kingdom that's coming to the earth one way or the other? That is what we're called to do. Now, to do that inside of ourselves individually, it requires us taking responsibility. Last night... I talked to you about relearning the love of God. Tonight, I want to talk to you about your individual responsibility. Now, I reserve the right to preach this if I ever get a Sunday morning free to come here. So I don't want to, I don't want to re-preach it and someone go, oh, I heard that already. I reserve the right to, because this is good. But this is a perfect opportunity in a discipleship situation to, to talk to you about one of the most important things I can talk to you about in discipleship, and that is taking personal responsibility for where you are. 
it is not someone else's fault for you being where you are. Now, this is gonna be a very this might sound hard, but it's gonna be a very freeing night for you if you'll stay with me, okay? Now, if you could bring those slides up, my friend. Before we get into the scripture, we have to understand some terminology that you're gonna see, okay? First, light, life, and increase. Light, life, and increase are three synonyms used in the Jewish language to, to illustrate, it's a euphemism to illustrate anything that brings your life to wholeness and abundance. It, it, is, it is defined, let, let me just read it right here. It's the description of a realm of life that leads to completion, favor, and multiplied blessings. In scripture, it is always tied to a choice to live God's ways. Light, life, and increase. It doesn't literally mean turn on a light. It doesn't mean life or death like you quit breathing. It's when you choose to live in the light as he is in the light, it means you are choosing to live in God's ways, and that will lead you to the best life. I set before you today life and death. Choose life that you might live. That life, what, what, what happens if you choose outside of God's ways? Do you die immediately? No, but your life starts going into disrepair. Essentially, anybody that makes this about heaven and hell is missing the point. As a matter of fact, the concept of hell did not even come along until way later after this book was written. This was not, anytime you're reading any piece of literature, you have to ask yourself two questions. One, who wrote it? Two, who was it written to? And three, how would they have taken it at the time? How, does they, how did they take it at the time? What does that mean? Let me give you an example. He who wins souls is wise. All right, Solomon wrote that, and so did Daniel, by the way, all right? So when Solomon wrote that, was he talking about going out on the street and getting people to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? No, that concept didn't exist when Solomon wrote that. When Solomon wrote, he who wins souls is wise, what he was saying was, was when you win your way of thinking over to the way God thinks, it will make you wise. That's is a, simple, it's a simple Jewish euphemism. So you have to at least ask, what do they mean it at the time? So light, life, and increase. Anything that brings your life to wholeness and away from disrepair. Second group of words. Next slide. Death, darkness, and decrease. These are descriptions of a realm of life that leads to disrepair and unraveling of completion. In Scripture, it is tied to a choice to live outside of God's ways. To state it, put, to state it very succinctly. People who choose to live inside God's ways are experiencing light, life, and increase. People who choose to live outside of God's ways are experiencing death, darkness, and decrease. Let's say it another way. People who choose to live inside God's ways, their life is coming to more completion and wholeness. People who choose to live outside of God's ways, their life is coming to disrepair. Now, does God love the people in darkness? Yes. Does he love the people in death? Yes. Does he love the people in, in light? Yes. Does he love the people in life? Yes. Does he love the people in increase? Yes. Does he love the people in death? Yes. Does he love the people in darkness? Yes. Does he love the people in decrease? Yes. The issue isn't whether or not you belong to God. We're going to talk about that in a second. And the issue isn't whether or not God loves you. And the issue surely isn't whether or not you're forgiven. There is a huge difference between forgiveness and blessing. And this is a big part of discipleship, is understanding the difference between forgiveness and blessing. Forgiveness is always free. Always, 100% of the time, even all the way back to Abraham and Leviticus, Le forgiveness was always free, 100%, always by grace of God. Nothing you could do to earn forgiveness. Forgiveness was always free, always. But blessing was always conditional on obedience. So you could be forgiven and miss the blessing. Like, for instance, if you go out tonight and steal something, are you forgiven by God? 
Yes. Will you go to jail? Yes. Will you learn how to kill people with a paper clip, a rubber band, and a straw? I was impressed. Actually, if I could throw something in here, if anybody knows how to kill someone with a paper, with a paper clip, a rubber band, and a straw, if you could please see me afterwards, just in case I ever get arrested, I can understand how to do this. <laughs> I need to know these things. All right? If you, if you are forgiven, that is free. But how blessed you are has to do with where your level of obedience is to the, to the ways of God. You go out and steal something tonight, you are forgiven as forgiven can be, but you will likely go to jail. There's, jail is full of forgiven people who've just done stupid things, okay? And they're all innocent. I, no, I'm just, all right, so, right, jail, jail, is full, jail is full of forgiven people who God loves who are just paying the consequences for living outside of God's ways. There's a big difference between forgiveness and blessing. Nothing and let me be clear about this. Nothing I'm fixing to talk about affects your forgiveness in any way whatsoever. Your forgiveness is totally free and complete in Jesus Christ and the price he paid before the foundation of the world and then manifested at the cross. Nothing I'm fixing to say has any effect on whether or not you're forgiven. Everything I'm fixing to say has everything to do with how blessed you're going to live. And those are two different things. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Ezekiel 18. Here we go. If you could bring that up, I'll just read it from here. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as the Lord your God lives... You will no longer quote this proverb to me in Israel. Let's stop and talk about those three verses. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about Israel? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I am God and I live, you will not say that any longer. Now here's two questions. One, what does this proverb mean? Two, why is God so intent on the people of Israel not quoting anymore? Why is he so upset? Now, to understand this, you have to understand a quick history of Israel. The book of Ezekiel is written by a guy named Ezekiel. And it's written to the people of Israel, but they weren't living in Israel. They were enslaved in Babylon. Okay? When Ezekiel is writing, he's writing to Israelites who were enslaved in Babylon. Now, this is ironic because if you know Jewish history, where did the Jewish people come from? Egypt. What was their job in Egypt? They were slaves. So these people that were slaves in Egypt are now re-enslaved in Babylon. Why would that have happened? Here's why. God got a group of people who were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. He got them out of Egypt into the promised land, and then this is what he says to them. I want you to be a kingdom of priests for me. I want you to show the whole world what it looks like when God is in charge of things. So I want you to think about this. If you are a freed slave and, you, and God tells you, I want you to show the whole world what it looks like for me to touch your life, what are you called to be? You're called to be people who free slaves. Okay. So if, if you're a freed slave, 
And God says, I want you to go free slaves to show the world what I do for people. Then that's what you're supposed to do. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a discipleship night. I want you to think. Is that what Israel did? No. No. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9 says it this way. And this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple to the Lord. So here's a guy who comes from a lineage of freed slaves, forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the Lord who frees the slaves. It says that Solomon bought and sold chariots and war horses from country to country. Well, if you buy and sell weapons, what are you? You're an arms dealer. So Solomon, who was supposed to be a king to maintain justice and righteousness to the poor, did not do that at all. He became a greedy arms dealer who stored up gold and war horses in order to buy and sell it from country to country at a profit. 1 Kings chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 talks you through that whole thing. So here's a guy that was supposed, he was supposed to lead the country in such a way that maintained justice and righteousness to the poor, but he didn't do that at all. What he did was he became a warlord who oppressed people and forced slaves to build the temple to honor the Lord who frees the slaves. And Solomon failed to see the irony in that. God says, this is not on, and they end up back in slavery. Why? Because what you make happen for others, God will make happen for you. They end up back in slavery. Now, I want you to think through this, okay? If you're an Israelite and you're put in slavery by God because of something Solomon did, who do you blame? Solomon. So Solomon, here's what they did. They wiped his name out of Jewish history for a period of time. If you read a lot of the prophets, Solomon's name is not in there. They call him David's son. And the reason is, is because you weren't allowed to speak his name. It was his fault. And so the prophets show up in Babylon, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezra. These people show up in Babylon and they say, listen, take heart, for God is going to send a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus is walking down the road, and lame, broke, blind people, what do they call Jesus? Jesus, son of Joseph? No. Jesus, son of God? No. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, if you're the one the prophet spoke about, then you're the new son of David who's supposed to maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. And by the way, I'm poor. Right? So the people in Israel who were taken as slaves into Babylon, they blamed David's son. They blamed Solomon. And they came up with a song, a proverb, and it simply said this, Because my father ate sour grapes, now my teeth are set on edge. In other words, the only reason I'm where I am is because someone else failed. In other words, let's say it this way. In Ezekiel 18... The current generation was blaming the previous generation for all their problems. My, I'm where I am today because my dad ate sour grapes. See, see, when you eat something sour, if I had a sour grape and I brought you up and I said, I want you to eat this. If I soaked grapes in vinegar all day and I said, I want you to eat this, he might would eat it. But then he, his face would go like that. But if he ate it and my face went. 
right? That's weird. Why? Because when you eat sour grapes, your face is the only one that gets set on edge, right? This proverb changes that. It says, somebody else ate sour grapes, and it changed my teeth. It made my teeth set on edge. In other words, it's a euphemism. It's saying that the reason I am where I am is because my dad was awful. The reason I'm a thief is because my dad was terrible. The reason I'm a woman beater is because my dad was a woman beater. The, the reason I'm a cantankerous, horrible woman is because my mom was a cantankerous, horrible woman. The reason I'm like this is because someone else was like this. My father ate sour grapes, so it sets my teeth on edge. My parents made destructive choices, so I suffer. My parents chose a path, and I'm paying for it. My parents set a financial destination, and they're broke, therefore I am broke. The reason I am broke today has nothing to do with the fact that I've given in to life habits that made me broke, and I continually buy things I can't afford with money I don't have to impress people I don't like. It's all my dad's fault. Or Satan's fault. My parents gave me nothing to start with, so I have nothing. My dad had an anger problem, so I have an anger problem. My dad did dishonest business, so I'll do dishonest business. My father ate sour grapes. My dad was a drunkard and a drug addict, and it ruined my life. So I'm going to choose to ruin my children's lives by doing the same thing because my father ate sour grapes, so it sets my teeth on edge. God says, I don't want to hear that. See, all of our faith. You say, Shane, you don't understand. My dad had issues. Really? Of course your dad had issues. He's a man who put his pants on one leg at a time. But Shane, my family had issues. Really? All of our families had issues. Why? Because men and women were never intended to live together. I don't know how God ever thought that would work. They're just different. Look, marriage is hard enough as it is. If you got two really good people who are mentally healthy and basically good-hearted, marriage is still hard. The Bible itself can't even agree on what marriage should be. Paul said, Paul said this, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. Solomon said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So you got a guy with a thousand women going, this is great. And you got Paul going, nah, don't bother. Why? Because men and women have issues. Even if both of them are good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, they just have issues. Why? Because they're different. They're not wrong. They're just different. Let me give you some obvious ones. Smells. Women like sweet-smelling things. Flowers, perfume, the smell of cologne, soap. They, they, like, they like their men to wash regularly. Men don't care. The men don't care. You hand a woman a bouquet of flowers, what does she do? She sniffs it. What do you do? If you hand a man a bouquet of flowers, what's he going to smell? 70 bucks. That's what it costs. 
70 bucks. Women like sweet smelling stuff. Candles is a great example of this. Two women can go to a candle store and sniff wax for an hour and call it fun. Can you imagine two men doing that? Hey, Billy, check that out, man. That's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something special right there. No. Of course not. Why? Because women like sweet-smelling things. Men legitimately like stinky stuff. And who's wrong? Neither. They're both doing what God designed them to do. Women like sweet-smelling stuff. Men like stinky things. Nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. <laughs> Women think that's disgusting, but men, men love that. If, if a man... If a man is playing a pickup football match and it starts raining and he gets done and he's full of blood, mud, sweat, tears, all this, and he's got to run to a meeting. So he gets done with his football match and he changes clothes real quick and showers. He takes those bloody, stinking, nasty, dirty clothes and he puts them in a plastic bag and he ties it up and he puts it in the trunk of his car. Three months later, He's looking for something in the trunk of his car, and he finds that bag of clothes. Now, every man in this room knows what's going to happen next. He is going to open that bag, and 100% of the men in the room are going to sniff it. And we know it. It's the code of the man. It is the code of the man. And we know it. And if, and if I find my bag of dirty clothes, and I'm willing to sniff it, and you're close to me, and you're my friend, you owe me a courtesy sniff of my thing. And if you smell my thing, then if you ever have a dirty, smelly thing, then I owe you a courtesy sniff of your dirty, smelly thing. We know it. All men are like this. That's why if you're ever stuck in traffic right out here and, and you get stuck at the red light and you got four men in a car and there's three of them with their head out the window and the last guy's in the back seat laughing, he just cashed in on his courtesy sniff. Women love sweet-smelling things. Men love stinky things. Men have to prove. Listen, you ladies, if you, can, if you marry a man and you can train him to put his dirty clothes in a dirty clothes hamper, if you watch him, he comes home from work, he'll stand in front of the dirty clothes hamper, he'll take his clothes off and put it in a dirty, dirty clothes hamper. Before he drops his socks in, he'll go and drop them in. It's like we have to prove that we work. <clears throat> men love listen listen men love stinky things women love sweet things and those two people are supposed to live together listen i guarantee you your mother growing up loved sweet smelling things your dad growing up loved stinky things and those two people trying to live together your family had issues of course they had issues hello even language Language. You, you, the, 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 the wife says, this is the worst meal I've ever cooked. The husband's trying to help. He goes, no, it's not. <laughs> He's trying to help. It's just language issues. A woman, a, woman says, a woman says, I have nothing to wear. I have nothing to wear. A man looks at the closet and goes, you have a closet full of nothing to wear. But every woman in the room knows what she means. When a woman says, I have nothing to wear, what she means is I have nothing new. Let's go shopping. Men don't get that because when men say, I have nothing to wear, what he means is, I have nothing clean. Please do the laundry. 
It's two different things. You're saying the exact same thing to the exact same person, and you mean two separate things. It's not wrong. It's just different. Men and women are different. Your mom and your dad had issues. Of course they did. A woman says, can you believe how much weight I gained over the holidays? Can you believe how much weight I gained over the holidays? I can tell you men don't know what to do with that. They, they just look at the clicker and, well, oh, what? Oh, yeah, we don't know what to do. We have no idea. But the next day we listen. The next day we're out at the mall and we're just browsing and we have an hour to waste. We're at the Christian bookstore and there it is right in front of us. Lose weight God's way. And we think we're helping. And we bring the woman home a diet book. And what she hears is, you don't accept me for how my body is. And she explodes when actually the guy was trying to help. Why? Because we're idiots. We don't know what's going on. If a woman brought home the diet book, you'd make a workout plan and work out together. Same diet book. Why? Because men and women are different. You say, my family had issues. Of course your family had issues. A man and woman trying to live together creates issues. Of course it does. Hello. You say, Shane, my dad had issues. Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad had issues. My dad liked to scare me. He's a Vietnam vet. I think Agent Orange got, I mean, it was, uh, it was unbelievable, my dad. He thought it was hilarious to scare me. Well, one time, I had this bad habit. I've never been a morning person, ever. He had this, I had this bad habit. They'd wake me up in the morning, and I'd, they'd sit me up on the side of the bed, and then I'd sit on the side of the bed and fall back asleep. And so dad was trying to break me that. My dad has always gotten up so early. Since I was born, my dad has been praying for me early in the morning. And he keeps getting up progressively earlier. When I was a small kid, he got up at 5.30. Then in junior high, 5.15. In high school, 5. Um, when I was in college, he moved it to 4.30. The other day, he said, I think about getting up at 4. I'm like, Dad, if you keep this going before you die, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. Dad was just always up early. And so, so dad decided he's going to break me this. And here's what he decided to do. Now, let me keep this in mind. I was 7, okay? He hid under my bed. My mother came in not knowing he was under there and shook me awake and sat me up on the side of the bed. And so I sat on the side of the bed, and I was just about to fall asleep. And my dad reaches out from under the bed and grabs my feet. <laughs> Your dad had issues? <laughs> one time my dad, to get me in the morning, he put himself in my closet. I had one of these closets that opened like this. He put himself in my closet in the form of a crucifix. And so I, I, I'm like seven years old, and I get up and I have to choose my clothes. And I walk over, stumble over to the closet, and I open the closet, and there's my dad. Your dad had issues? He liked to embarrass me, too. There was one time where dad, um, dad took me to junior high camp. Now, let me put this in perspective. Okay? I was 13 years old. It was junior high church camp. Right, 104 of us going on two fully loaded big giant school buses. Okay, Dad pulls up and he says, "Hey, buddy, listen." He says, "I hope you had a great. I hope you have a great time at camp. I want you to know I'm praying for you every day, and I bless you for God to do what He wants you to do in your life." I said, "Thanks, Dad." He said, "All right, give me a kiss." And I said, "Dad, not here, not in front of my friends." He goes, "Okay, I understand. Go ahead." So I get out the car and I get on this bus. 54 people full on this bus. I was in the second to last row. We were just fixing to go, and I looked up, and to my horror, my dad was getting on the bus with his shorts pulled up to here, black socks up to his knees, and he was walking like this. 
he grabbed the mic of the bus and he stood at the front of the bus like this. And he said, this bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Waney comes up here and gives me a kiss. The whole bus started chanting, kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues? Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. My dad had issues. Your dad has issues. The issue isn't does our parents have issues and did our family have strife and did this happen or did that happen. The issue, listen, that, that works when you're 8. That works when you're 13. But when you're 34, it is time to stand up and do something with your life. It's nobody's fault for where you are. It's nobody's fault for doing that. See, the younger generation hates the older generation for the choices they made. They feel like they're suffering for the choices of that. The question is simply this. Can I have my own life? Can my own decisions, can I have my own decisions, or has my path been determined for me by my parents and by their parents and by their parents? Let, let's, let's, look at the, let's look at the next line. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. He keeps going. For, he says, so God says, I don't want to hear that proverb ever again. My father ate sour grapes, and it sets my teeth on edge. I'm never going to hear that again. And then this is what he says. Four. Every living soul belongs to me. Let's stop and talk about that for a second. So who in this world does not belong to God? No one. If you're breathing air, you belong to God. Are you living in God's world? Yes. Are you held together by God's name? Yes. Are you breathing God's air? Yes. Do you belong to God? Yes. The question isn't, if you've ruined your life, the question isn't, do you belong to God or not? Every living soul. If you're still breathing air, you belong to God. Every living soul belongs to me. The Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. But the soul who sins is the one who will die. Now once again, let me remind you of the terminology. Death, darkness, decrease. Is this, the, is this talking about physical death here? Can't be. Every, every time you sin, you just die? No, that doesn't happen. It's, it's when you step outside of God's ways, the process of your life unraveling starts to unfold. As you step outside of God's ways, this happens. And then after Ezekiel 18 verse 4, a long explanation ensues. And essentially this is what he says. I, I, I'm going to paraphrase it instead of reading it, okay, just for time's sake. Here's what he says. He says, if a good man has an evil son... And then that evil son has a good son. All right, so you got three generations. You have a, a righteous grandfather who has, who, who has a wicked son who has then a righteous grandson. Okay, you following me? He says this. He says, Ezekiel says, that the righteousness of the righteous man does not go forward to the evil man, nor does the evil man's evilness go forward to the righteous grandson. Each generation stands on their own two feet before God. That God does not punish the second generation for the sins of the first, nor does he impute the righteousness of the first generation to the evilness of the second. That every generation stands on their own two feet before God. Now, let me ask you a question in light of last night. In this day, what was Ezekiel called for saying this? Heretic. Why? Because the Bible clearly teaches that the sins of the father go to the third and fourth generation. 
This is a new revelation that Ezekiel's having of God. And he's saying, you're using that as an excuse for your awful behavior. And it's leaving you to a life of hopelessness because you think if your father sinned, you have no hope. I'm here with good news. And the good news is this, is that God does not treat people like that. Here's what God does. God treats each generation on its own two feet. The righteousness of the righteous man stands before God. And the wickedness of the wicked man stands before God. And neither affect the other. Every single generation stands on its own two feet. And you can have the hope to make a different choice. It's never again. Your father ate sour grapes. Your teeth are set on edge. It is you can stand on your own two feet with the power of Messiah and the blood of the lamb and full of the Holy Spirit and you can make a different choice for your life. This is hope. This is hope. See, sometimes common sense is helpful. We wash our dishes after we eat them. Helpful. We bathe once a day. Helpful. We speak politely. Helpful. Sometimes common sense is destructive. Everybody sleeps around. Is that true? Pretty much. Is it helpful? No, it's destructive. Promiscuity will destroy your life. Is it common sense? Yes. Is it destructive? Yes. To use my grandmother's wisdom, if everybody was jumping off the bridge, would you jump off... No. See, see, everybody gets drunk on the weekend. Is it true? Pretty much. Is it helpful? Nope. Nope. Hey, in our culture, everybody gets wasted. Is that true? Pretty much. Is it helpful? No. What Ezekiel is saying is he's saying, I need you to be brave enough to look at your family habits and be brave enough to decide this is working, this is not. Keep what's working and run from what is not and make a new life for yourself. Every living soul belongs to God. But the one who chooses outside of God's ways, that's the one who, who enters into the realm of death. See, sometimes we have to stand up against what everyone is doing and change the pattern. Everybody in my family yells, yes, but is it destructive? Yes, so can we change the pattern? Yes. Just because everyone's done it up till now, why can't you be the hero for your whole family? Why not? Who? Someone's going to do it. It's either going to be you or your son. It may as well be you. May as well. Jesus' teachings are full of, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. In other words, yeah, this is what the pattern's been for 150 years, 200 years, 400 years. This is what it's been, but it don't have to be that way anymore. You could take responsibility and you could stand on your own two feet and you could be the hero, not just for yourself and for your life, but for all of your offspring's life. That four generations from now, they can look back at you and go, that was the hero of our family line. See, see, the truth is, the, the, the reason it takes four generations. See, it, it, my dad was the hero of our family line. You gotta understand, I have 26 cousins. So there's 26 grandchildren. My grandmother had six children, they had 26 children. Of the 26 children, only six graduated from high school. Only two went to university, that was me and my brother. My dad was only eighth grade educated. But my dad stood up against poverty and drug addiction and alcoholism and he said, you know what? As for me and my house, from this day forward, we're gonna serve the Lord. And I never knew one ounce of any of those things. And the reason is, is because my dad was brave enough to say, just because my dad did it, doesn't mean I have to do it. I am gonna, and you know what? My, my, I don't have any children, but my brother has four children. 
and his children will have children. And by the time they come along, righteousness will be all the family line knows because the rest of them have died off. And so by the time four generations come, my dad would be the oldest remembered patriarch and he will be the hero of the family. People won't even remember the wickedness that the Willards purported. Why? Because one man was willing to stand up and say, just because my father ate sour grapes does not mean my teeth have to be set on edge. I can stand on my own two feet and I can change my generational tree by being brave enough to change the pattern. That's what I could do. My dad did that. My, dad's, my dad is the hero of our family. My mom's father is the hero of that family. My dad is first-generation godly person. My mom is second-generation. My mom's dad said, enough of this, enough racism, enough poverty, enough addiction. I am not having this for my family. I'm going to work hard, and as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And my granddad on my mom's side started that. My dad on his side started that. And my mom and dad got together, and they changed their family tree. And you could do that, too. You could do that, too. Sometimes you just have to be brave enough to take a look. Now, let me, let me read to you the end of the story. So he says, okay, there's a grandfather who was righteous, who had a wicked son, who had a righteous grandson. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Ezekiel 18, verse, uh, verse 17. Ezekiel 18, verse 17. I'm going to read just the end of verse 17 and then go into verse 18. It says, he will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst his people. Yet you ask, why does the son, now think about this, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Now let's stop and talk about that. Remember, in those days, it was common knowledge that the son shared the guilt of the father. Everyone knew that. It was in our websites, and it's in our verses, it's in our pamphlets, it's in our fundamental truths. Ezekiel is dabbling in changing the way people related to God. They said, why? Wait a minute, hang on. My Bible clearly says the son does share the guilt of the father. Watch what Ezekiel says. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep my decrees... He will live. The soul who sins is the one that will die. Once again, the realm of death, disrepair. The son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. In other words, every generation stands on its own. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. Now watch this. But if a wicked man turns away... From the sins he's committed and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, he will live and not die. Now, remember what I said at the beginning. Nothing I'm saying tonight has anything to do with forgiveness. It has to do with blessing. And this, even this. He says, essentially, he's giving hope. He's like, listen, no matter how much damage you've done in your life, you are one decision away from entering into life instead of death. No matter how far down the road you get, God is still there saying, hey, one decision, you want to live in my ways, and you will find that it will start automatically repairing your life. You're not going to need a miracle. When you start living my ways, your life will be a miracle. Watch what he says. But if a wicked man turns from all the sins he's committed and keeps my decrees and does what is right, he'll enter into the realm of life and leave the realm of death. Watch this. None of the offenses he's committed will be remembered against him. 
Because of the righteous things he's done, he will now live. In other words, no matter how far down the road of destruction you come, you're one decision from entering the realm of life. And once you enter into the realm of life, God doesn't hold your past sins against you. He's not still punishing you for what you did. Now watch, watch this, watch this. Do I take pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Now watch what he says. But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? No. None of the righteous things he's done will be remembered. Because of his unfaithfulness, he is guilty. And because of his sins he's committed, he'll die. Now watch what he's saying here. Don't take it out of context. This has nothing to do with heaven and hell and nothing to do with physical life or death. He's saying this. No matter how far down the road of wickedness you get, you are one step away from entering into the realm of life. But once you enter in the realm of life, it's not like a one time and you're done. Entering into the realm of life requires every day waking up choosing to live in God's ways. Because you can never rest in the laurels of yesterday. No matter how far down the path of life you get, you are one decision away from your life falling into disrepair. Let me, let me give you an obvious example. No matter how strong you think your marriage is, I guarantee you your marriage is one decision away from going into disrepair. No matter how strong you think your business is, your business is one bad decision away from being in towards bankruptcy. No matter how far, no matter how good you think something is, you start playing around and you start compromising and you enter into the realm of death, I'm telling you, you're going to find your life will slowly but surely unravel. No, no, let's, let's keep reading. This is brilliant, brilliant teaching of Ezekiel here. The Ezekiel, Ezekiel's take on life is so good. Watch what he, what's what he says. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? And then he summarizes it. Well, listen to this. He says, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he'll die. Because of the sins he's committed, he'll die. But if a wicked man turns from his wickedness, he's committed and does what is just and right, he'll save his life. In other words, obviously euphemisms, otherwise you'd have people dying and living. You'd have resurrections everywhere. No, no, he's saying, he's saying no matter how far down the road of wickedness you get, you are one repentance away from entering the realm of life. And no matter how far down the road of life you get, if you start entering into the ways of death, it's going to unravel your life. It's, gonna, it's just going to do that. Now, now watch what he says. Because he considers all the offenses he's committed and turns away from them, he will live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. What? Now, why is he addressing this? Because there were people in Israel saying that Ezekiel was a heretic. And he's defending himself because he's, he's going against the grain. Now, watch what he says. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, not his father's ways, his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from your offenses, and sin will not be your downfall. Now, if you tune me out, if you tune me out, come back to me right now, because this is really important. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Now, let me apply this. One, all of us are shaped by our history and heritage. Okay? Every one of us are shaped by how we were raised. 
Yes, your family had issues. Of course they did. Yes, your dad had issues. Of course he did. Yes, your mom had issues. Of course they did. Yes, your neighborhood had issues. Of course it did. Every one of us are shaped by our heritage in some way. Why is it that some people are automatically calm and some people yell and scream? Where does that come from? That's shaping. It's shaping from your heritage. Why is, it, why is it that some people have certain ways to handle conflict and other people have others? Why is it that some people confront head on and other people isolate and won't speak for three days? Why is that? Why are some people automatically promiscuous and some people automatically bent to purity? Why is that? Why are some people just open and honest and why some people tend to secrets? This is, this is shaped by your history and heritage. Here's, here's what was happening in Ezekiel 18. In Ezekiel 18, people felt helpless to change anything. Ezekiel is giving hope that just because your pattern has been like this, you are one day. In other words, Ezekiel 18 is a wake-up call to anyone who wakes up in the morning with the lie that today simply has to be a repeat of yesterday. It does not. It's like an alarm clock, like a trombone going off in your ear hole going, tomorrow can be different than yesterday. It doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to be. Now, let's say it this way. We must take responsibility, repent from these things, and live. The word repentance has nothing to do with being sorry. The word repentance just means to turn around, to return to the one who bought you. Essentially, God's had this for you since before the foundation of the world. It's not time for you to create a new reality. It's time for you to turn around and grab what God had for you all along. That's what it's time to do. That's what it's time to do. Get a new mind, to think differently. The word repent literally means to change your mind, to think differently. Now, I want you to listen to me. This is so, so, so crucially important. When we choose God's ways, he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Remember verse 31? It says, rid yourselves of all of these offenses, and then you'll get a new heart and a new spirit. Now, let me be, let me be very, very candid about this. There are teachers, and there is teaching in the Bible that is legitimate that simply says this. You need to get healed, and then you'll have the power to behave correctly. That's how it goes. Now, is that legitimate? Yes. Could I make a case for that from Scripture? Yes, I absolutely can. That there's part of teachings of Scripture that says you need God to touch your life, and then when he regenerates you, then, then you will have the power to behave better. But that is not Ezekiel's take. Ezekiel says the exact opposite thing. Ezekiel says, when you choose to live God's ways, in your choice to behave correctly, built into that is God's promise to give you a new heart and a new spirit. That, that, that in, the, in the decision to live in God's ways, part of that package deal is, is that God will, will change your heart and your spirit. In other words, people... People who choose to live God's ways, what they find is, is if they do it long enough, they couldn't imagine living another way. And they didn't have any miraculous altar call thing. They just simply chose to live in God's ways. And the reinforcement of their life working created a new heart and a new spirit. Because see, the truth is this. Sometimes I hear people say, I just need to get healed. If I can get healed, I could act better. If, if I could get healed from all my pain, I wouldn't yell so much. If I could get healed from all my pain, I wouldn't do so much drugs. If I could get healed from all my pain, I wouldn't drink so much. Bull crap. That is absolute bull crap. Because some things you can't be healed from. 
Some days you can't be healed. Your dad did what to you? And you want to be healed from that? I don't think so. Some divorces are so devastating and so much betrayal in them. You want to be healed from that? No. Some financial situations are so destructive. You want to be healed from that? Uh-uh. Some things you can't be healed from. And that is the beauty of Ezekiel's teaching. Ezekiel says, God doesn't want to heal your heart. God wants to give you a brand new one. He doesn't want to, to stitch up and, and mend you up. He just wants to take the whole broken thing out and then give you another one. And that, and that, that is so much better. And he says, here's all you got to do. Here's all you got to do to do that. Take responsibility. Quit saying that my father ate sour grapes so my teeth are set on edge. Quit blaming everybody else for where you are. Stand on your own two feet and say, my problem is my problem. The, my, my biggest problem in life is what I look in the mirror at. My biggest adversary is the person I shave with every morning. That is my biggest problem. Take responsibility for where you are. Look at your life and choose from this day forward to live in God's ways and be the hero for yourself and your family tree. When you do that, God doesn't want to heal your heart. He wants to give you a brand new one. My father ate sour grapes, so it set my teeth on edge. From this day forward in this group of people, may this pastor never again hear you blame where you are in life because of somebody else. When you blame where you are in life because of somebody else, you're giving them all the power. They don't have any power. They've been dead for 20 years. You got to remove power from them and take the power back yourself by taking responsibility and doing something about it. And you could do it. Anytime. And I'm only telling you this because I love you. That sounds hard, but I'm only telling you this because I love you. If I heard you say, I'm, I'm where I am in life because it was someone else's fault, you have just disempowered yourself. I am trying to give you the power back. And I want you to know that with God, you can stand on your own two feet. You can choose to live in his ways and get a new heart and a new spirit. And I encourage all of you to make that decision tonight to say, I will never, ever blame my dad one more day. I will never, ever blame my mom one more day. That will never, ever blame my neighborhood one more day. Today is my day to stand on my own two feet and be the hero for my family and change my family tree forever by choosing to live in God's ways. I will not tolerate another way of life one more second of my life. Never, ever again. And that's discipleship. Discipleship starts with a commitment to relearn the love of God, like Ezekiel was doing. But it also starts with a responsibility that where you go from here is up to you. It is no one else's fault. It is up to you. And I want to pray for you tonight. If you would just stop and center yourself around God. And ask yourself, Lord, what would we feel like if we could feel you now? If your presence did come in this place, what would it feel like? If your prayer tonight is, Lord, give me a new heart and a new spirit. I just want you to whisper that under your breath. Give me a new heart and a new spirit, Lord. Empower me over my slave drivers. Why don't you just choose right now to forgive your dad? I love the way Jesus defined forgiveness. He defined forgiveness as canceling debt. 
It's not that what your dad did wasn't wrong, and it's not that you should forget it, and it's not that it didn't hurt, and it's not that you should keep letting him do it. It's just you don't owe me anything anymore. Why don't you just in your heart tell your dad, I cancel your debt. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. Why don't you just forgive your mom? Mom, you don't owe me anything. Why don't you just tell your neighborhood, you don't owe me anything. I'm going to stand on my own two feet now. I'm choosing God's ways. I want you to pray this prayer right there where you are. Lord Jesus, give me the courage to see things differently. And the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. From this day forward, I will not tolerate a variance from your ways. If I eat sour grapes, it's my fault. But I want your blessing, not just your forgiveness. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be your guest tonight. I hope that was a real blessing to you. Um, I'm going to be back as soon as I can because I love you guys.